Welcome to this special edition of the Globe Podcast. I'm here with Jesse Roach, who you may have heard on the Don't Call It Soccer podcast about the MLS and Liga MX, and also occasionally on the South American podcast as well. Today, we are going to be talking about Uruguayan football, the history and politics of the country, but also about Deportivo Maldonado, a tiny second division club that have emerged to have players who are major players on the European stage. Jesse, did we get that national anthem right? Uh, unless Adam Brandon or the uh, Copa America suddenly um, did some sort of tech wizardry and played the Chilean national anthem, you did, and I'm really appreciative of that. Great to hear. Right, okay. Tell me a little bit about yourself, first of all. What's your relationship with your Uruguayan football? Um, my my father was born in Minas in a, in a teensy-weensy little town that um, some people will know as the birthplace of Washington, El Loco Sebastián Abreu, um, who is, oh, you're going to make me do this in the metric system. Um, Ellis, what is six foot four? Very, very tall. Some some meters tall. Yeah, um, it's pretty tall. <laughs> it is pretty tall. And is known for a pretty audacious uh, penalty chip um, over the keeper's head in the 2010 World Cup. Um, currently plays, I believe, in Paraguay, but has been bopping around uh, South America for some time um, and is really known for not much more than that. Um, and because of this sort of accident of my my genes, I've just been suffering as a as an Uruguay fan and a Luis Suarez fan and a and a pretty um, scared and terrified and and stomach achy football fan for the last 32 years of my life. Good stuff. Good stuff. So tell me a little bit about Uruguayan football for those who might not know that much about the beautiful game over there. You know, Uruguayan football is you. There was there used to be a saying a few years ago that you used to have to be an engineer to understand the the league system similar to the Liga MX there is what's called the apertura the opening um season sort of like a mini season and then a clausura a closing season but what what happened a few years ago was that the apertura the the opening came after the clausura which makes no sense they've since sort of reformed the the, the scheduling um but because of the way, you know, Uruguay is a country of 3 million people and 1 million of those people live in Montevideo, the capital. So mo- the majority of the teams, 12 of the 16 um, first division teams are centered in Montevideo. Um, the two largest teams, Peñarol and Nacional, both for, until last year played at the Estadio Centenario, the main uh, stadium. You're going to see that my brain is going to go back and forth into English and Spanish. It's going to get more confusing as we go. So welcome to my ride. Um, vale, no hay problema con eso. <laughs> so we're both going to be translating back and forth. Hello, viewers. So this is the stadium that was built in 1930 for the um, World Cup, which, fun fact, you guys, Uruguay won. It's Peñarol got their new stadium last year. Nacional is building their stadium now. It was just two years ago that Plaza Colonia, a little tiny team on the coastal town of, of Colonia, was the very first non-capital team to win the league, the Clausura. 
And that year, Peñarol actually won the Apertura, so it wasn't a, a, a wash, a washout for Montevideo teams. It's exciting every year because of this, because it's never like one team will win everything. But it's also, um, I know, Alice, I have a feeling that you're going to ask me about, about wages and, and how these players sort of, whether they can afford to, you know, I know that we know this from watching Luis Suarez and Cavani, you know, now in Spain, players like Jose Jimenez come up. That's where they thrive. They tend to thrive outside of Uruguay. And right now we have a seven really young players playing in Serie A who, you know, though that tends to be a source of national pride for us, it's also a, a loss for the ALF, the, um, the Uruguayan league system, because we're losing those players to league play. Aha. Okie dokie. So what about the history of Uruguayan football? Tell me a little bit about the history of the game there. Because people wouldn't really know Uruguay if it wasn't for football, really, would they? Well, that's just silly, isn't it? They're all wrong. Um, no, that is true. My my favorite story is a couple years ago when I went to donate blood and you have to answer all those questions about, you know, where you've been and whether you'd ever been to Africa. And I wrote no, and but I had been to Uruguay and a nurse who was about to stick a needle in my vein looked at the answers and said, uh, you said you'd never been to Africa. And I said, no. And she said, well, what's this then? I said, that's Uruguay. She said, uh-huh. And where's that? And I thought, oh, I don't want you sticking a needle in my vein, you woman who doesn't know where Uruguay is. Um, so you're right. People don't really know unless they've heard of Suarez. Many of these teams were actually founded by Englishmen who came over to work on the rail systems um, way back when. So Peñarol was actually founded in, ooh, I want to say like 1890, but it, it could be 1891, it could be 1889, but I want to say 1890, in, in the neighborhood of Peñarol on the outskirts of Montevideo. Um, it has a basketball team, it has a cycling team, but it was, it, it was originally called the um, Uruguay Railway Cricket Club of Montevideo. Um, it was Englishmen who played cricket and rugby. And most of the main teams um, in Uruguay were founded as sort of gentlemen's clubs by expats and then were, were organized into, into league play. There's a, one of my favorite books of all time is called Soccer in Sun and Shadow. And, and a lot of that tells sort of the history of not only Uruguayan football, but South American football that, that was organized um, way back when by these Either, either colonists or, or South American gentlemen who had nothing better to do and, and just hung around railway stations or, or parks playing soccer and then figured out that they actually could make a league together. And it's, it's a really great history. So you're sort of caballeros, you're sort of middle class gentlemen. Would it be fair to say the game was perceived as a middle class sport? In Uruguay, the game is absolutely perceived as a game for everyone. Um, when, the Clásico between Peñarol and Nacional are playing. The streets are absolutely empty. And when somebody scores, you hear roars going up and down the street. Um, I was there a week and a half ago. Peñarol was playing. And in I, the windows were closed in my grandparents' apartment because it was chilly outside. And when Peñarol scored, the, you, you heard the roar going up in Montevideo from every other window on the street. This is, you know, it's, it's a tiny country. And so pride in your team is huge. And these are teams that are, my grandfather became a member of Peñarol at the age of 18. So 
you become a member of the club, meaning that you go to your club for exercise and for bingo games and for chess matches. And you take your grandmother because she's going to go swimming while you play football. And this is your community center. So, you know, when you asked about why I'm a, I'm a an Uruguayan football fan, it's because really you have no choice in the same way you have no choice to become a fan of the team that your great grandfather was a fan of, because that is absolutely passed down in your blood. So I, you know, he, paid, I believe it was, I don't know, eight pesos to join. And then my father became a member and went to the games. And I had Penidol pajamas when I was two. <laughs> and there were really embarrassing pictures floating around somewhere. And there's really, you know, I'm looking around my apartment and there are at least two things in my apartment that have Penidol flags on them. I have no idea where they came from, but they have been following me from apartment to apartment. Because really like that's, it's, it's more than a club, as so many clubs say. Some of them even contribute to your insurance if you work through them. Um, it's, it sort of is part of your way of living. It's your friends. It's your neighborhood. So it's, it is your, your, your community when you're down there. Uh-huh. So what's the situation in the Uruguayan game Domestically, let's talk about the wages players earn. How much do they earn sort of compared to the general population? Well, there is a, I don't know if it's a great story, um, but there's a story of a player who um, played for Nacional. His name is Luis Urbina, and he got paid in bricks of cement uh, to build his home. I mean, this was in, again, the 1800s. So it's not that bad now. However, I looked up a couple of days ago because you are great at preparation. And so I knew you were going to ask me this question. And the Uruguayan Football League did put out a list of minimal salaries over 10 years. And so in 2004, the minimal salaries for this is the Premier League in Uruguay. So, so first division players in 04, we're making 7,452 pesos to the year. And the second division, we're making 3,726 to the year. In 2014, that had been raised to 29,580. Um, and the and the B League, which is where Deportivo plays, 14,790. They do have to pay 1% of that into Social Security. So, so how, is, how is that compared to the general population? It's commensurate actually it's um it's a it's a it's a living wage but it's not nearly anywhere like we see i want to say in any other you know in mexico they don't get taxed the same so these players are able to live phenomenally well you know we we all know what players are paid in england and spain it's absolutely nothing like that these players are not paid like superstars they're paid enough to buy homes, but these are not flashy houses and they're not paid enough um, to live the lifestyles of their peers in other countries. Uh-huh. However, I will tell you that this is a country that has socialized medicine. So, you know, they're also reaping the benefits of that if, the, if that says anything. You know, players in the United States still have to pay for health care. So um, I guess if you're putting it that way, there are some benefits looking at it from a from a United States point of view, 
for English and American listeners, socialized medicine, for English and European listeners, sorry, socialized medicine is essentially the NHS or a, oh. a public health system. For Damn companies. it, all of you. You know, if anyone is looking to trade citizenships, just let me know. You could send me a lovely message on Twitter and we'll, uh, we'll talk. It's great. Good stuff. So, <laughs> is it necessary for Uruguayan players to move abroad, Ben? And how many of them do? Most of them do. And why Most is that? Opportunity and wages. Um, again, seven of our, of our young, of our um, sub-20 of our sub players, the players with the most, I would say, sparkle power. <laughs> sparkle power? That's not a thing, Ellis Palmer. The most, what do I want to say? How do we say that in a way that doesn't make most, me sound like I'm learning with the most, the most potential, I guess. There you go. Great. They came out of the sub-20 team with the most, I guess, uh, traction. Have just gotten contracts in Serie A, Rodrigo Betancourt, Lachelt. These players have all taken the first contract to play overseas, and they're being paid at least double, at least most of them more than that, what they were being paid in South America. And they're also getting spoken about a lot more. They're getting articles not only overseas, but in the Uruguayan press, which is really stunning. Um, when you look at a player like Naita Nandes, who is at the top of his career and at the top of the Uruguayan table, he plays for Peñarol, he's really young, um, disgustingly for how well he's playing. Um, uh, he has come up the ranks of the first division so quickly and has really, he knocked Forlan out of his position at Peñarol and has stayed there. But the amount of press that he gets compared to a player like Nico Castillo, like Betancourt, who are not playing in Uruguay, is remarkable. There's not even, there's no comparison. You know, Nandes, who plays week to week, who is in front of Uruguayan's eyes, you know, getting goals in the league, is not mentioned with the same amount of potential as these other players playing overseas are. So does that mean Syria is going to get a lot of attention Uruguay? Unbelievably. And, And you could see it with the... (laughs) <laughs> almost with you know with the amount of satellite dishes going up and also with the amount of time that Syria is getting on Uruguayan television in the news it's it's getting the same amount of um, coverage that Barcelona and Real Madrid get because of the three Uruguayans that we have in those two teams so it, there's definitely a, a lot of let's see how well our boys are doing so to be fair to say they're getting they're getting the most attention out of, out of the European leagues, which is pretty cool, really, to be fair. And these guys who've gone over to Italy, what uh, clubs do they come from in Uruguay? So I'm going to give you a list, and I'm going to tell you how well they're doing right now, and I'm going to try not to throw up over how young they are, Ellis. Um, so we've got Mati Vecino, who some of you may have seen um, against Brazil because we had so many players um, either injured or suspended. Yes, I'm going to say he's 21, but you know, I might be lying. Oh, he's 25. He's 25. He's 25. I have the right list. Oh my goodness. He uh, plays for Fiorentina. So we have uh, Toreira, who plays for Sampdoria, and La Schalt, who, if you have noticed, is 
not giving in to any of the media telling him to cut off his braids. He's been sitting on the bench for a while with the national team, but he's one of the players that Tavares keeps calling up and not using. I'll say we. Many of us are hoping that he gets a shot. He's he's playing phenomenally well in the in the Serie A and has been playing. <laughs> again, I sound like a preschool teacher. He plays really well with others, um, and we're really hoping that he'll be one of these players that will come up as some of our older players either age out or retire. That he'll sort of pick up the slack where they've left off. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool that they've got. And then they've got young players sort of playing, obviously, Cagliari in West Ham. But are there many sort of young, or previously at West Ham, I should say, are there sort of young players playing in other parts of Europe as well who can be eventually brought into the team, into the national selection? Cagliari is actually um, Argentinian. Um, he's an Argentinian, I believe, under-23 youth player, although he... I know we're going to talk about Deportivo. He was contracted at um, Deportivo in this interesting, I'll use for lack of a better word, um, third-party system. By the way, guys, that's coming up in the second segment. So. Yeah, hence my hesitation on the word interesting. But yes, we, we have some players that I'm I'm really excited about. Gaston Gurusiaga, who um, is a just sort of like a Gumby wall of a of a goalkeeper in, in for Penny at all right now who again with with the sub 20 team just his limbs move in ways that that I would love to see him on a dance floor like it would make me nervous and excited all at once he he flails but like a controlled flailing so I want you guys all to go and 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 find him so you know that I'm that the way that I'm ex- describing this is is accurate it's it's like somebody put him together with pieces from Ikea, but it works. It makes no sense until you see it. And then you just have so much faith that he, that he just got, he's got your back. It's fantastic. Um, I'm very excited about him taking over for Musleda at some point. He's young and he's, he's, his focus is so laser focused that sometimes he just spends most of the game with his hands on his knees, like crouched down and glaring at his own defense and at the people coming towards him. I love watching him. It's, it's phenomenal. I know you said young and I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to go the opposite direction. I love Carlos Sanchez. If people listen to me wax rhapsodic about him, I apologize, but he's 37 years old. He gives me hope for the future. He plays for Monterrey and he doesn't age. He takes I don't know. He drinks magical mate because it's like he just looks the same now as he did 10 years ago. And I love him. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. We'll sure let him know you love him. Right. Um, you should tell him. tell him that the next time he's on the pod, just let him know. So now we're going to talk a little bit about um, one of the biggest themes, issues, and then whatever you want to call it, to come out of Uruguay and football in recent years, about this Deportivo Maldonado a small second-division club where the big names never actually play, as the title of a Guardian article put it recently. So, Jesse, just who are Deportivo Maldonado? What a great question. Um, you know, when you do some digging, it seems like no one really knows. Well, Maldonado is a, is a tiny, really pretty town, as we say, in the interior, in the sort of um, interior, I guess, of of Uruguay, meaning not in Montevideo. And I'll just give you, I guess I'll, I'll give you a, a short 
history, a concise history for those of you who are writing essays on this. Um, Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. So sharpen your pencils, peeps. The team was founded in 1928. Back then, it was Batacaso Football Club. In 32, they actually became Deportivo Maldonado, and they, but they didn't actually go pro. They didn't join the Segunda División until 1995. So this was about 60 years that they just sort of lingered. In 1998, so three years after they joined the Segunda, um, they lost the the promotional playoffs. So they. They sh that should have been it for them. Um, but that was the same year that the, the ALF, the Uruguayan Football Association, decided to up the number, the quota for the top flight clubs from the interior um, so that it wouldn't feel so quite so lopsided from teams from Montevideo. What that meant was that teams not from Montevideo would be represented by four. <laughs> and because of that, um, Deportivo Maldonado was sort of grandfathered in. And they remained in that division until 2004. Throughout this entire history, so, you know, I don't know. Again, I keep asking myself to do math and failing. So 70-some-odd years, um, they've never maintained any kind of financial stability Um, and so in 04, they did what I think a lot of football clubs do, and they they found another um, small club to merge with. And this one was sent um, a club in Punta del Este, which makes zero geographical sense. This was Centro Cultural y Democrático Punta del Este. If you look on a map, I don't know if you if you find an actual map that that makes sense, you'll see that. Uh, this for fans, I think, who, who want to travel or don't want to travel, this is not at all convenient. And so in 04, the season that they merged, it was the last in the top flight of the league. And, and not after that, the two clubs decided that this was really nonsensical. And so they decided to split again after that campaign. Again, I think that for many people and a, a lot of Deportivo fans felt like so many of these times when they merged, when they split, those could have been the end for the club. And like we spoke about before, every time it could have been the end for the club, it could have been the end for the club community. So when you lose your club, you lose all the revenue that goes into the community center, that goes into the building and the, the social workers and the facility and the people that take care of you and your family. So it was like a lot of instability in the community as well. Um, and then in December of 2009, the club, the football club, Deportivo Maldonado, were taken over by two of your compatriots, Englishmen, um, Malcolm Kane. I keep wanting to say Michael Kane, not the same. Uh, Malcolm Kane is a racehorse owner, um, and Graham Shear, who's a lawyer. Although Graham Shear has since said that he's uh, no longer involved with the club, I could not find conclusively whether that was true either way. But they did not speak to any respectable marketing people because they rebranded the club Deportivo Maldonado. Sad. Guys, in the era of Trump, not so smart. Really sad? Whatever. So it stands for Sociedad Anonimo Deportivo, which I guess sort of translates to like... Anonymous company. Yeah, yeah. Sporting Maldonado, basically. Right, like anonymous sporting club. I, uh, it sounds pretty weird, doesn't it? It sounds weird either way. In English, to look at Deportivo Maldonado, sad, sounds dumb. Sociedad de Deportivo, in Spanish, sounds 
a little um, shady, and that's your history. However, on the on the positive side, if you're going to look at the positive side, what this did do is bring a lot. What what the takeover and what we're about to talk about um, brought a lot of immediate revenue into the club, which they turned into a number of things, including a complete revamp of the facilities. And so although the stadium itself looks like a stadium from a movie about one of those teams that like, you know, wins an Olympic medal with two team members and a horse um, on a field made of packed dirt, um, the rest of the facilities are beautiful and they have a cycling club and they you know, do all kinds of great things for Maldonado itself. So how has the club emerged in recent years then? In the Segunda División? Have they become this sort of global entity that we're talking about? Oh, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Ellis, you were going to have to sort of help me explain this in the way that makes sense because they do this thing as as you were explaining before, where they contract, they they buy players and then loan them or sell them, making enormous amounts of money. But those players actually never played for them. And you use Kajeri as an example. Kajeri is a great example. He was bought from so Kajeri came up like like a lot of players, like Tevez actually, through the All Boys Youth Academy in Argentina, and and then went to Boca. So this is you know, the trajectory that he was on seemed really impressive from Boca. You know, he could have gone to Europe, but he was actually bought by Deportivo for almost 10 million pounds, which when you think about a tiny club, when you think about any club in Uruguay, the fact that they have 10 million million pounds is unreal. But when you think about a Segunda División club, I don't know how they have that much money. I, it's, it's even more incredible than really. It's, it's, I, I am incredulous and it's incredible. I mean, people in Uruguay don't have 10 million pounds. Clubs don't have 10 million pounds. I don't know where that much money comes from. So Kajeri, you would think that they would want to use a player of his caliber to play and perhaps get promoted. Um, but he never stepped foot on, on their pitch. And in fact, um, they sold, they, they loaned him to West Ham in August of 2016 without him having, I don't even know if he dressed for Maldonado once. They probably gave him a press conference or something and said, hey, here's this guy we signed for 10 million pounds. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 maybe they borrowed a shirt from someone else and just like scribbled his name on it for, you know, because they, they, they knew he wouldn't have to use it. It never got sweaty. I mean, the nice thing is no one's doing laundry. <laughs> Fantastic. Maybe it's a laundry of a different type, though. I mean... Ooh, that was so good. <laughs> to a certain extent, there have been rumours, you know, third-party ownership was banned by FIFA in December 14, 2014, although FIFA was very, very slow to act for party ownership. Now, is this a case of third-party ownership, or what is it? Because it all seems very, very weird. This tiny little club in, a, in the second division in a South American country has suddenly got £10 million to spend on a, a top Argentinian player, a top under-23 Argentinian player, who then goes and plays for a top-level club in Europe. But it just seems a bit surreal. 
And they're doing this, you know, you know, their scouting is impressive, but they're scouting mostly Argentinian and Brazilian players. They did this with Sandro, capped by the Brazilian team, which is not easy to do, and then bought by Porto. And when he was bought by Porto, made Maldonado millions, never stepped on the pitch again, like um, we said with Cajeri. But they do not scout, they, they rarely scout Uruguayan players. So the team, although you would think, okay, like maybe this is going to help, like you said about England, Uruguay's youth division. Maybe this is going to become some sort of training system. The national team is not being helped. The the Uruguayan league system is not being helped. And this is this is actually because of how the trade laws between these nations are set up. So an international transfer of a player from an Uruguayan club to a club outside of the country would be taxed at 12.5%, uh, whereas three years ago it was 4%. Um, so, and again, I, this is from somebody who I majored in theater. I think I had to take one math class and I passed it maybe because I drew pretty pictures. So you may have to help me with this one. But if transactions like like the ones that they're making were conducted from Argentina, right? Like they're doing with Gerona Morrucci, like they're doing with Cacheri, the minimum tax demands would be at 25, 24.5%. And then they get all these like kooky deductions. I think this is because of Mercosur, which is the sort of IMF of South America. Or the, the EU of South America, the economic trading bloc, if you like. There you go. It's also because other football federations have sort of put or not, sorry, not put rules in place yet about taxing their players. And the Uruguayan Association, the AUF, have apparently thought about creating a rule that would force Uruguayan clubs. And I'm going to read this directly because, again, this is like so beyond me. But this this says that um, the AUF have thought about creating a rule by which all players acquired by an Uruguayan club must play for their first team for six months before they can then be sold overseas. But Uruguay actually has a pretty solid Uruguayan employment law, um, which lets workers have the freedom to choose wherever they apply their trade. And that does go all the way down to football players, which is why, you know, Suarez was able to choose to go to Ajax from Nacional, which is why our young players are able to go wherever they choose. We have a, um, a player who's right now at PSV Eindhoven. He was able to go without playing first. I think he, he left three months into his contract. So there's there's a, a sort of downfall and as well a, a human rights sort of upside to this. I get you. I think the term for moving these players abroad, rather than be for party ownership, are so-called bridge transfers. So, but where uh, does that span? Like, yes, but where do you draw the line? Where do you say that that's sort of just a different term for the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I do think it is very much a different term for the same thing. But because what we've read is a lot of these young players are not actually seeing the money that is being made off of their enormous transfers, no. you know, that it, that it goes to these owners and it goes to their agents and it goes to the people who are just moving them around the globe, but it's not actually going to them. So what's the relationship there between Deportivo Maldonado and these big level European clubs? You talked about Jeromonio Rui, who's at Real Sociedad, who signed from Deportivo. Maldonado for Manchester City last summer was then 
went on her own to Real Sociedad and then was brought by Real Sociedad in January or something like that. It's all very, very strange. But right, and it's equally strange because a lot of this is so hard to even discover. You know, a lot of this is hidden. It's like Sheer saying that he's no longer involved with the club, but that's hard to figure out for sure. When you go on the website for Deportivo, for the club itself, it's not very apparent what's what and who's who. Rushi, who, again, like you said, plays for Sociedad as a goalie. Um, he played for the Argentinian under 21, uh, sorry, under 23, and I believe under 21 as well, and came up through the Estudiantes youth setup. So, you know, he, he had a pretty solid relationship in Argentina to his team, um, played in the first team squad. I think he played actually under Justo Villar, but when he was bought or signed to Deportivo, he was loaned out to Sociedad for a year and then they bought they, they bought him outright. Looking at Wikipedia here, that's my level of information. He played 50 games for Estudiantes between 2011 and 2014. He then signed for Estudiantes for Maldonado in 2014. Never played for Deportivo Maldonado. Went on loan to Real Sociedad, for whom he played 58 games between 2014 and 2016. Then went back to Deportivo Maldonado, and then signed for Manchester City for around four million pounds, and then immediately was loan back to Real Sociedad, where he's, he's had a pretty top season this season, really, to be fair. Yep. And then Real Sociedad signed him in January. It's very, very confusing. It's like trying to work out a web of football transfers. And the thing is, if you look at, for example, if you look at the what it says as the current roster of Deportivo Maldonado, many of those players are not actually playing on that squad. You know, Darío Ferreira, who is an Uruguayan footballer, he's from Montevideo, um, and, and is listed as a Deportivo player, is playing in El Salvador. He's playing in Alianza. So it's, they're, they're, they, you know, they don't make it easy to trust them. Which is not great, <laughs> I say, uh, with all kinds of uh, hesitation, because when you speak to their fans, and I, I did speak to one um, when I was down there, they love their club because that's, you know, we love our clubs. Um, we have no choice. It's what we do. We're sort of born that way, um, as you all know. And they show up and they, and they watch their teams. Um, I'm just, I'm going down the list and, and. Paul Sosa, also from Montevideo, currently plays for Everton in Chile. You know, these players, they, they, so what one of their fans said was, no, he never knows who's going to show up on the field. Um, he never knows who he's going to cheer for from week to week, but he cheers for his club. So in a way, that's the fandom and the, and that's, that's true love, <laughs> you know, um, and it's more, that's what more than a club is for them. But it also, I think, says a lot about what kind of club they're running. Wow. Okay. So what's the story about Jonathan Calieri? Calieri, who I must correct myself for listeners. I said he wasn't at West Ham anymore. I've now just discovered he is still at West Ham. I do Well, I'll take away all your points for that. I do um, apologize for future. <laughs> what's, what's the situation? I mean, previously, he was at All Boys. He then went to Boca Juniors. He then went to Deportivo Maldonado, the shell club. And then went to Sao Paulo on your own. And then West Ham on your own. This guy's playing at top Latin American and European clubs. But he's contracted to 
a tiny club of a ramshackle stadium in the Uruguayan second division. Yep. Yeah. And they got 10 million pounds off of him, which is bonkers. Again, I'm not being at all articulate because this, none of this makes the kind of sense that, that we're used to. Yeah. Ellis, I don't know what to tell you. I, you know, what I don't understand is how FIFA is allowing this to happen because of their stance on third party ownership. You know, apparently there are five teams that still do this kind of non third party ownership, third party ownership, if we'll call it that. Kashiri is right now on loan with West Ham, the same way he was on loan with Sao Paulo. We'll see what happens, what what Deportivo will do coming up. You know, whether either whether West Ham will want to buy him outright if they can, whether. Deportivo will allow that to happen or whether they'll force him to sort of bounce around if they want to use him as a money-making outlet, which would really be a shame. Um, we've seen Argentinians do really, really well in the Premier League. And, and I also, I, he finally got a call up to the Argentinian national team for the Olympics. It's nice to see some younger faces in the national team. And I think if he continues to do well, playing in a place like West Ham, playing in Europe, then he could really, he could make his debut in the national team. And that, I don't want to say anything about this Argentinian national team because that's just rude, but it would be nice for them to maybe not rely on the people they've been relying on. <clears throat> Messi, etc., etc., etc. Right. So... Bringing this to a little bit of a close, what's the future for Deportivo Maldonado? Where do they go from here? How do they expand? You know, they've got all these great players on their own at top Latin America. I, I don't think they have to expand. I don't think anything has to happen. Like, look, I think the ALF right now has so much more on their hands to deal with, with um, security at stadiums, which is something that, you know, I've talked about in other, in other podcasts. It's such a huge shame that what's happened in other South American nations has now happened a couple of times at our big games. And that's where their focus is. And they are not dealing at all with what's happening at Maldonado. It's not even on their radar. And unless FIFA does anything about this, there is no reason for these owner for Malcolm Kane change what he's doing. It's clearly making him a lot of money. And he is this first or second on the ball to get these really talented young players. So I think in his mind, he's super successful. Ethical, no. Successful, yes. Um, I think it's going to depend on an outside force to to make a change. I don't know where that outside force is going to come from. And will Maldonado, will Deportivo Maldonado ever become a, a title-winning team in Uruguay? Could they potentially compete with big teams? Could they be the you know, the <laughs> um, with the way that they're going now, no, because they're not putting any effort into club play. I think their effort right now is in taking these young rising stars and, and sort of funneling them through the mill of that press conference that you talked about for a hot second and then sending them right out to wherever they're going. So there's no, nothing is happening in Uruguay at the moment for them. They're, they're seem very content to stay mid, you know, second division because that's what's keeping them off everybody's radar. Okie dokie. 
I know, now, I just ended on a really depressing note. I'm really sorry. To be honest with you, it's just a really confusing issue. I hope it I've cleared <laughs> it up and brought it to the attention of our listeners, because you know what, I'm going to be confused by it. And I've been reading about it for the last two days, and it still doesn't matter. I still can't make heads and little tail of how they're getting away with it. But and it's are. funny, because I, when I knew you were going to ask me about this, I wrote to all these people in Uruguay who, like, you know, write for, for football journals in Uruguay and, and all of them to a person wrote back and said, why are you writing about this? None of us know anything about this. It's really fascinating that, that this is sort of not on flying under people's radar, flying under their noses. Maybe you have, you have sort of opened a Pandora's box and you're the one who's going to make a change. Boom, boom, tish. Right. Hopefully. Also, Famous. we've created new sound effects. I like it. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> So where can we find you, Jesse? What wonderful pods have you have you been doing recently? Oh, I was going to say you could find me huddling with my head in my hands whenever all my teams play and lose, but that's not what you meant. Um, you can find me from week to week talking with a pretty great cast of people about the craziness that is the MLS and the Liga MX. Um, but don't call it soccer podcast. Yes, thank you. I forgot. Yes, good. See, I'm glad you're here. Indeed. Just scroll down in your feed that we are there. It really is worth a listen if you're interested in the MLS or just want to understand more about how their football wing system works. It's really, really interesting. And it's also really interesting to find out more about the Mexican system as well. I'm Ellis Palmer. I normally host the WFI EPL Weekly Podcast, where you can find me there talking about football, about the beautiful game in England, and about English clubs and about everything like that. You're very, very soon also going to be the fan, me and Jesse, on there talking about her beloved Tottenham and the wonderful season they're having in the Premier League. Don't forget to check out all of the pods in your podcast feed. We've got some wonderful ones coming up. Tactics pods are great listening, Gagan Pressing, uh, Football Grad, Stand of Arigas, interview with Graham Hunt, people of the Classico was absolutely fantastic. Obviously, the EPL pod, the EPL pod we're starting some great pods recently. And yeah, just don't forget to check out all the wonderful pods we've got on there. It has been a pleasure speaking to all. Jesse, any final words? Um, this has been really great. Thank you for having me on. Cheerio. Cheerio.